0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time together, together to uh, just think deeply about uh, our life together, think deeply about what it is that we believe, um, to really seek to understand doctrine and why this doctrine that we believe and we hold so dear is so important. I pray that you would prepare our minds to understand more about you, to, that our hearts might engage at a deeper level with who you are. I pray that your uh, truth would permeate even the dark recesses of our heart, expose the areas where we are weak, and build us into stronger people who revere your name and who love you and who are committed to service to you. So we pray that you would do that in and through everything that we say and do this morning, uh, including in the worship service later on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Skeeter, will you grab those doors? Close those doors. Um, Alright, so last week we began... Um, with our study of the of cults and the occult by simply really just defining what, a, what the cults are and what occult is. Uh, th- that is O-C-C-U-L-T. Uh, and the difference between the two. And so one thing you can see up there at the very top is just a very brief summary of everything that we talked about last week. First of all, a cult is really a religion, it's a religious group, it's usually formed around a specific person, normally, uh, and that person normally has a terrible interpretation of scripture, and leads a whole bunch of people to adopt that misinterpretation of scripture, and normally revere them as either some sort of leader, or some sort of messiah figure. Uh, that's typically what it means to be to participate in a cult. And, no, and all of those uh, cults will have major deviations from historic Christianity. So, um, you know, m- think Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, these religious observances that are normally formed around a, a singular person, Joseph Smith, let's say, and a misinterpretation of Scripture. Normally that person is some sort of highly revered prophet, if not the Messiah. But the occult, which most people don't even really trade in that term or don't pass that term around, the occult is really a uh, participation in, spiritual, in a spiritual enterprise. So this is a, a, a worship-specifically attempt to communicate with a demonic spirit. So right now in our culture, what you may not notice if you're not paying attention, if you're not, you know, Listening to what some secularists or people that are outside Christianity are really saying, cults and the occult are growing, perhaps at a rate I don't remember seeing at least in in recent years. Um, particularly the occult. So, cults have been around for since the as we're going to see since the dawn of Christianity and before, but the occult is something that is very much on the rise. And all of it really comes down to the same basic issues, which is it's basically a system of belief that makes me my own Savior. Eventually, that's what it's going to get down to. Undermining Christ and making me my own Savior. Finding my own way to God or my own way to eternal life. Effectively, the whole battle of, the, of cult and the occult is all one long process of trying to become my own savior. And and most of that happens by undermining the work that Christ has done. Because essentially in the gospel message, the the point is you are the problem and Christ has come to save you. God has saved you through the work of another, through the work of Christ. And and you were the problem and now he has redeemed you through no work of your own. So that's the heart of the gospel message. So to undermine any of the aspects of Christ is to then say the gospel is not necessary. We go back to me trying to save myself, effectively. So when we're engaged with people on our doorstep, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, or we're engaged with our friends who are you know practicing Wicca or uh, you know various forms of witchcraft uh, or demon worship or whatever, then what we have to remember is all of this is really comes down to the same thing. It's an attempt to save ourselves. And so it's not as though I have to know every tenet of everything that you believe in order to see you come to Christ. I have to know the gospel, and I have to know Christian doctrine, and I have to know where you are deviating from Christian doctrine. So this study that we're in is not just, it is a week-by-week approach to various forms of Cultish pra- cultic practice, and the occult. But it is really that all of those serve as a foil to help us understand what Christian doctrine actually is. What it is that we actually believe about Jesus. So, this morning, Robert, do I have a keynote yet? I cut it short for three minutes. I need that keynote. Uh, <laughs> so, Robert was like, give me nine 9.30. I was like, well, 9.27 is all you get. Oh, it's 28, so... Got it for me? Is it coming? It's up there. It's Coming soon. I'll need it. We'll just sit here and wait for Robert. Tell me when it's up. Do what? No pressure, but it's all on Robert. Come on, there we go. Um, all right, throughout Jesus' ministry... Uh, and following his death, his resurrection, and ascension, questions began to circle in the early church concerning his person and work, that is to say, who he is and the nature of what he has accomplished. So as I was saying at the beginning, this, the idea of uh, perversion of Christian doctrine has taken place since the very beginning. Christ ascends, and already there's questions about who he was and what he did. And there's already an attempt to undermine some of the things that, are, uh, that, that have been believed by every Christian since that day. Now, we talked about, from the, from as far back as even the last week, that all of this is satanic in nature. All of it is devious in an attempt to deprive humans of their only means of salvation. So, all of it is, is devious... But it's through the work of certain individuals. But but understand this too, that as devious as it is to pervert the doctrines of Christ, it is necessary for Christians to understand what they believe. In other words, for the, the people who have perverted the doctrine of Jesus, that was necessary for the first century church to be able to go, wait a second, what is it that we do believe about Jesus? And to state it very clearly. Right? So, even as devious as these people are, or as perhaps even some of them may have been well meaning, I don't know their heart, but perhaps some of them may have been well meaning in in their perversion of doctrine. All of it did serve God's ultimate purpose of clarifying what it is that we're saying is true about Jesus and, and really forming for all Christians throughout for the last 2,000 years a consistent creed about what Jesus said what he did, and who he actually is, and what it is that we believe about him, right? So that's not to say that there's not bad aspects of, of, of this. We're going to see that there very much are. But it, it does help us to clarify what it is that we actually do believe. So people came in from the very beginning and start to undermine his person and his work. Timothy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're, we're, we're going to see these pop up. And, and what I think is really important, too, is as we watch the first, century, first few centuries of Christianity deal with some of these uh, doctrines, these false doctrines that have popped up, it should inform how we, as the church, go about addressing these concerns in the culture. And you're going to see they were unashamed, to, to call people out who are preaching false doctrines. It's very unashamed. Now, that doesn't always mean that they did everything perfectly. But, <laughs> Doug. Yeah, in that light, why don't we, uh, uh, in the non confessing churches, why don't we recite the Nicene? Let's talk about that in just a second. Um, all right, so as the early church began to put into human language explanations and definitions of what the world witnessed in Jesus, some explanations that were put into the culture misled Christians to an understanding of him that fell short of saving faith. These false definitions were deemed heresy and their proponents were deemed heretics. Heresy and heretics. So, when we say heresy, we're not talking about someone who is wrong. Okay? Someone who is wrong might say something that is that is a classic heresy like you, you may say something about Jesus that is wrong in church right you, we may be talking it's happened uh, I can't tell you how many times talking with somebody and they say something about jesus that is that's false and that doesn't make you a heretic okay right that that means you either don't understand something or 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 whatever, but it doesn't necessarily make you a heretic. When we we talk about heresy, we're talking about definitions that intentionally mislead someone and cut short their access to saving faith. So there's an intentional act behind it of someone attempting to mislead by undermining what Christ has done. And, And what that does is cut you short. Go ahead. Um, Jesus did. He said, the, you, you mean Jews that, that say Jesus was not real. Not, we're not talking about Messianic Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah. We're talking about Jews that don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Right? Right, they believe, yep. there's no waiting for Him to come. Right, in Revelation, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. So, as hard as that term is for us to wrap our minds around, that's exactly what He's saying about that if you undermine the doctrine of Christ with an intention to cut short someone's access to salvation, you're a heretic. Well, aren't most Jews still waiting for Christ? All Jews are. Well, the ones that still believe in God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is not that many. But yes. So but but let's 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 Parse this out just a little bit further because there, there is a difference between the one teaching the heresy and the ones that have been subjected to the heresy. Right? There are people that are misled. Okay? That doesn't mean that they're actually saved, even though they believe in heresy. That that's not what I'm saying. But it is to say the level of responsibility for the teacher, the heretic is much greater, and even James points that out, right? There are people who are misled into heresy by heretics. But what I'm trying to say is, not everybody who's wrong about Jesus is a heretic, okay? We're all wrong, right, to one degree or another. Ain't nobody in this room, nor ever lived outside of Jesus himself, that has doctrine squarely aligned in their brain. That has all their theological ducks in a row right? We're all wrong somewhere, okay? That doesn't make us heretics. It's, there's an intention to mislead and cut short someone's access to salvation by undermining the person work of Jesus Christ, okay? That's, that's specifically what we're we're talking about here. And beyond that, notions, um, such notions were more, were more than merely erroneous, in regards to some finer points of doctrine, but were dangerous to the faith as a whole and would result in eternal damnation for its teachers and followers. So, the reason that the church decided to engage with certain doctrines is, one, because they were growing and gaining favorability amongst people. So, you'll you'll see for time and again, our church may make a statement we may vote in a member meeting to adopt a certain confession or a certain uh, statement of faith. Like a couple of them would be the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which was developed in the 1970s, um, the Nashville Statement on Marriage and Sexuality. Our churches adopted both of those statements, and they are confessions as to what we believe about biblical inerrancy. They are confessions as to what we believe about marriage, Sex, the nature of male and female, and things like that. And they're good confessions. And the question normally comes up is, well, why are we making a statement about this? You know, why don't we make a statement about that thing over there, that other issue over there? And the answer is, when the culture begins to adopt false doctrines, it's important for the church to make a statement about that false doctrine. That, that is short of salvation. And so what we find in the early church, and really for the last 2,000 years, is as doctrines have gained favorability, that have been perversions of Christ, they've been heresies, then it has been necessary for the church to speak out and to say, no, this is what we believe, and we condemn that idea over there. And the ones that continue to perpetuate this idea over here, that has been deemed heresy, those are the ones that out themselves as a heretic, right? Because they refuse to deny this in favor of the Bible and instead choose to say, no, this idea is, is true. This is what uh, is accurate, even though it cuts short people's access to saving faith. Does that make, make some sense? Okay. Um, so we're going to go through a couple of these heresies. This is by no means all the heresies that popped up in the first few centuries, but... The, these specific ones I chose because they're targeted directly at the person and work of Jesus. And there's a lot of other ones that were Trinitarian, that were this, that, and the other, but these specifically kind of focused on uh, who Jesus was. So one of the earliest heresies of the church uh, that the church faced was the denial of the full humanity of Jesus. This is known as docetism. Uh, and, it, and docetism... Uh, comes from the Greek word that means to seem or appear. So, uh, this, base, this view basically held that, that when Jesus came to earth, he only seemed to be a man. He wasn't really a man. And the, the way the thinking might go of the docetic person is, hey, uh, well, how could Jesus be fully man if man is sinful... And if to be in the flesh is inherently evil, how could Jesus then take on flesh and become a human being, a man? Uh, Wouldn't that make him complicit in sin if he took on flesh? So they started to gain favorability. But what we're going to see is you'll see some of this informs even some Scripture. So if you look at your handout, you've got the texts that, that are labeled there in your um, handout. 1 John 4, 1-3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John is actually addressing what is this early form of docetism, and we're going to see another one just in a minute that's kind of an offshoot of docetism, which is to say that Jesus has really come in the flesh, and anyone who says otherwise is not a believer. They're not a Christian. No matter how nice they might be, no matter how well-meaning they might be, no matter how many good deeds they might do, if they cannot confess that Jesus was really a man, they're not a Christian. So John's already saying, look, if you don't believe that, you have departed from Christianity. So one thing that I think it might be maybe a little bit shocking to our system in an age where there's a lot of acceptance over various forms of ideas and things like that, is that there are some ideas that are damnable. There are some beliefs, merely believing something that is damnable, that that does not save at all. Believing that salvation is by works is damnable. It's not just wrong. It's damnable. You're going to hell, in other words. So when we sit down and we talk with our friends who are misguided, sometimes their error is not just being misguided. Sometimes their error is leading them straight to hell. And John says, if you cannot confess that Christ became a man, you are not saved. All right, Uh, so the Docetists believed um, that he was a spirit being, that he only appeared to be uh, human, and so the church obviously spoke to this, encountering this heresy. The early church insisted that Jesus Christ was truly human, Because he experienced the true activities of human beings. You're going to see a few of these references throughout this handout that are not from the Bible. Okay, I want to just be very clear about that. They're not from the Bible. So I don't believe about them that they are the inerrant and inspired Word of God. So it's sort of like reading a history book from a first-hand account, right? Imagine if George Washington wrote his own biography. Uh, that would be pretty authoritative work, right? Because <laughs> it's from his own hand, right? Um, That's so, not even true. what's that? Jesus didn't sin, and so he didn't experience the sinfulness. He experienced the true activities of a human being, that he became human and experienced That's the, act- sinning, the t- being tempted in every way as we are, yet he without sin. It. Yeah, yeah. So he experienced the activities. Without sin. Yeah. The church is going to affirm that too, but, but what, we're, what they're affirming is, no, he really did become human, and he became human in every way as we are, yet without sin. Right? And, uh, and so you'll see this, uh, for instance, this one reference here is from Ignatius, an early church father, to the, the church at Smyrna, which is a church that you find mentioned in Revelation. And I'm not going to read all of of this this, uh, letter, but you'll see what he's getting at. And he says about the Smyrnians, they're totally convinced with regard to our Lord that He is truly of the family of David with respect to human descent, Son of God with respect to divine will and power, truly born of a virgin, baptized by John in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled by Him truly nailed in the flesh for us under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch. From uh, its fruit we derive our existence, that is, from the divine blessing suffer- blessed suffering, in order that he might raise a banner for the ages through his resurrection for the saints and faithful people, whether among the Jews or Gentiles, in one body of his church. He suffered all these things for our sake. So you can see Ignatius is going through and he's reaffirming to the Smyrnians, you, and this is right at the outset of the letter, you believe this in contrast to what others are saying. It, is, it has become necessary for the church to speak out about these perversions of, uh, of the doctrine of Christ. Um, and you can see that in their early writings. So docetism then kind of became part and parcel with Gnosticism. And Docetism and Gnosticism are both uh, circling around the early church very early on. I mean, even in the, the letters that are written in the New Testament, you can hear them pushing back against some of the Docetists and some of the, the Gnostics. The Gnosticism is, there's a lot to Gnosticism, which we won't go into, but basically it focused on a secret knowledge. No, gnosis comes from the, is the word for knowledge. And it, it, it basically says there's a secret knowledge that is reserved for the elite members of the sect. So you get in and you grow in this gnosis. And this Gnosticism to Gnostics, the spiritual realities are inherently good and physical realities are inherently evil. So they cannot accept the notion that God could become flesh because to take on flesh is to be inherently evil itself. Flesh is evil. So if you ever hear, this is how this, this comes into the fore today, right? You, you actually have experienced Gnosticism Probably in some of the ideology, maybe, hopefully it's not what you think, but maybe it will be some of the things that your friends think. You ever hear people say that like, uh, that, that your spirit is the real you, right? Waiting to get out of this fleshly body, this, like a, like a banana is peeled. The peeling is just thrown away and long forgotten to deteriorate. It's the bad part. And inside is the real you. If you pay attention, you will hear people say this today. It's Gnosticism. We don't believe that. We believe the flesh is sinful, but that the flesh will be redeemed in the resurrection of the dead. The difference between Gnosticism and Christianity is that the body goes into the grave in Christianity to kill the flesh and and its, its sinfulness, but Christ will raise the dead body from the ground and redeem it. So that you will for eternity be body and soul. You as a human being were created body and soul. Yes? Did Adam have a body? Before the fall was Adam's body sinful? No. Adam was created body and soul. You will be restored body and soul in eternity. So Gnostics would say that flesh is terrible, it needs to go away forever, and we, the soul is the real you waiting to get out of this evil exterior. So it's inconceivable then that Christ or that God could actually become human because to be human it would mean to take on the evil nature of the flesh. You tracking so far? So to counter the church's affirmation, several heretical gospels, so the church is affirming Jesus really was a human. And so the heretics are not willing to just let their heresy die in the ground and, and say, okay, we, we repent in sackcloth and ashes. They wanted to counter this. And so there are several heretical gospels that are circulated by Gnostics. And these include the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Peter. And, uh, now, some of you may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas. Anybody hear of the Gospel of Thomas? you heard of it? What have you heard it in relation to? There, there, yeah, there's a lot of things thrown into it. I think it's also, isn't it the, the Gospel that, the, that Islam promotes as the authentic telling of Jesus? And his, I believe you'll hear Muslims quote the Gospel of Thomas, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, and essentially, this is a, it's a Gnostic gospel. So you'll hear of the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter, and, and you kind of think, well, like, well, if it's the Gospel of Peter, don't we want to read that? Uh, if it's the Gospel of Thomas, I mean, doubting Thomas? That, that Thomas? Isn't that the, the gospel that we, we want to believe or want to read? The Gospel of Judas, which Judas, right? <laughs> comes the question. <laughs> But, uh, but, you know, the, they, they come across as things that you want to read, but they're actually, uh, they're, um, they're called su- they're su- pseudonyms, pseudepigraphas. They're writings that are attributed to somebody that they're not really written by. And, uh, and so, they're fake, in other words. And so, they're Gnostic retellings of what Jesus said and what he did. And so, church leaders, very early on, rejected these writings which were falsely attributed to the apostles. So the early church was united in its strong opposition to Gnosticism and its major tenet, Docetism, Doss, and ex, as, it, as expressed in these falsely named Gospels. So, the early church writers continually affirmed that Jesus Christ was both fully and truly God and fully and truly man. Fully God and fully man. And that the Incarnation did not in any way diminish the deity of the Son of God, nor make Him a Superman. He always existed and became incarnate as a man through His birth by the Virgin Mary. So, so that tells you something, that underscores something for you, Christian, that there are two things that you're holding at the same time about Jesus. He is first fully and truly God. So anything that you do to compromise that, saying, well, Jesus was born and then God saw a righteous person and chose him, that would be heresy, right? Because that doesn't have Christ being fully God. That means eternal. That means always with the Father. There never was a time in this entire anything when Christ was not does that make sense? There never was a time when the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was not in existence. Okay? Never. So when we say he is fully and truly God, we mean that. So Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is fully and truly God. But then on the other side, we can't compromise on Jesus being fully human either. He cried as a baby. <gasps> I know, I know. He got hungry. I mean, crazy thinking. He soiled himself as a child. His mom had to change his diapers. What do you mean by that? I would, I'm going to answer that in a way that is not going to satisfy you at all. I will say, I don't have any information as to what was going on in his brain at any point in the scriptures at least until he's an adult. So, I don't I can't tell you exactly what does it mean that he grew in this sight in, in stature in the sight of God and man. You know, I I I I can't begin to say what it was like to be Jesus as a 5-year-old. Right? How how conscious, and all those kind of things, I couldn't begin to speculate. So I think this is where we start to dabble into heretical notions is when we speak where the the Bible is silent. It does not tell you what he thought or what his mind was like when he was five. So to speculate on that would probably be unfair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When he is conceived in the Virgin Mary, he takes on flesh. So there is added to the second person of the Trinity is man, is is the body of a man. And he, he takes that on. That is abundantly clear. So he becomes fully and truly man. There was a question in the back maybe? Yeah, and and Silent Night, obviously said, you know, he was just there was that glowing ring around his head while he laid there on his bed of straw and spoke to his mother in kind words. He kicked his mother on the inside, just so you know, like when he was inside, just you know. I I but I think some of those are kind of you know ridiculous notions, is like that he would be anything other than a baby you know, while he was there. Consciousness, I, I couldn't begin to speak, but he, he was fully man. He was a baby. And he did baby things. Um, which is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but, but it, it is an assertion that we believe as Christians. Uh, and we know to be true. and is reaffirmed over and over. Now, Ebionism was another early heretical movement that denied the incarnation and insisted that Jesus was only a man in whom the presence and power of God worked mightily. All right? So now we're going the other way. Now we're saying, well, I don't know about the the Docetists and the Gnostics, but in Ebionism we say, well, he was only a man. Have you ever heard of adoptionism? That's this idea that God looked at this great little baby... And said, Look, the first baby that was ever born, not crying and not soiling himself. And so he's my guy. And I'm going to choose him. And he's gonna, I'm going to work through him. Right? So they're going the exact opposite direction of the other heretics in uh, the previous ones that we've discussed. So the early church countered by, um, by postulating. How, we could, how, how, how could man be saved unless it was God who worked out His salvation upon the earth? He was man, and He was God, in order that since as a man He suffered for us, so as God He might have compassion on us and have the ability to forgive us of our sins. So he, he, this is where the early church is attacking this notion. And this is the consequence of seeing him as merely a man that was adopted by God, is that if he's not fully God, how could he forgive sins? If he was not fully God, he lacked the actual power to carry out the saving process that was necessary for us. So he can't have saved us. And ultimately, the logical conclusion of Ebionism or adoptionism, is that you can't be saved because Christ could not accomplish that salvation as merely a man. The the two things have to work in concert with one another. First, Christ has to be fully man because if not, he couldn't fulfill the obligations that were placed on humanity. This is what you have to go back in Genesis and understand very clearly. God is placing upon Adam and Eve obligations, things they must do, they must meet, and namely that is obedience to him and the spread of his glory around the earth. They are charged with exercising his dominion in his name around the earth as his representatives. When they compromise that, it's not as though he just said, well, I guess that's it then. No. He is going to accomplish this goal that he has given to Adam and Eve around the earth. In other words, he is going to have a man spread his glory in his name by his power as his representative around the earth. He's going to accomplish that. And so comes along a family in Abraham, eventually bringing along a king in David, and he's promising along the way in these covenants with Abraham and with David, it's going to be through this line. Now, getting more specific, it's going to be through this line. It's going to be through a king. And eventually we come to the person of Jesus Christ who is going to fulfill as a man all of the obligations that were placed on Adam and Eve. So Jesus becomes the new Adam. But at the same time, we've got 2,000 years of history before Jesus that says, man can't do it. Every time David tries, he fails, as we're going to see this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here he is, king. He's winning. He is blessing everybody. He is, as king, he's bringing in Mephibosheth. Here's the blessing. You can eat at my table forever. He is blessing... uh, Chanun uh, in the previous chapter uh, you know, blessing his kingdom and they reject him and all that kind of stuff. But, he, but the point is he's, he's blessing everybody and you think, well, David's really got it going. He's got a hot hand. And then in 2 Samuel 11 it just plummets off a cliff, right? So we've got 2,000 years of human history or, or more that the Bible attests to It says as a human he can't do it. So unless Jesus is fully God and fully man. He can't fulfill the obligations as a man, and he can't accomplish the saving obligations that he's got because he's merely a man. Does that make sense? Tracking? So that he has to be both. And that's what the early church is coming in to say. Okay? So then we get a very famous one. Nope. What was that one? What did I just do? I clicked it twice. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Grace has... You know, she's keeping an eye out for me. Other heresies in the early church denied the full deity of the Son, including the particularly widespread Arianism that held that God, being one and only, could never share His being with anyone or anything else. So, Ebionism is saying, look, uh, He was merely a man and He was adopted, into the Godhead or he was, he was brought along, he was, he was adopted into what he eventually became. Arianism is saying effectively the same thing, but he's coming at it from a different angle. And he's saying, uh, look, we know that God is one. So how could Jesus be God and, the, and be the Son and appeal to to someone he calls the Father, and even say that the Father is greater than I, and still be God? That doesn't make sense. How can God be one, and also be two? Now, we didn't talk about the Spirit yet, so just, Arius is having a hard time with just the two, so let's not get him to the three yet. Um. But but essentially he's saying, look, how can God, if we know that God is one, how can he also be two? And and I think probably this begins to touch on one of the hardest concepts for Christians in the church today to wrap their mind around. God as one and three. How can he be one and be three at the same time, right? That's, I think, a very difficult uh, concept. And we're going to talk more about that along the way, but uh, suffice it to say, this is Arius' big problem. So, um, they asserted, the Arians, that this eternal and unbegotten God created a son. Thus, the son is a created being. This meant that there was a time when the son did not exist. So, you, you think some of these heresies, they just like, was just a guy's idea about who Jesus is, they're going to Scripture and they're pointing out texts that you've read many times and they're demonstrating this very notion to you that, G- that God was a created, was a created being. He was, God created a son. And he, he is created. Look at Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, what does that mean? that there was a point where he was not. And God obviously procreated somehow with something and gave birth to this son. And he was the firstborn of all creation. All right. What about John 14, 28? You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Well, there's Jesus right there pointing out that He's not one with the Father. He's not the same thing as the Father. He, the Father's greater than He is. So there you go. John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Right? Well, there it is. He's praying right there. Mark thirteen thirty two. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So these instances in Scripture Arius and the Arians are pointing out and going, this is a testament to exactly what we're saying. Jesus was created. Now, do you know what the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons are going to tell you on your doorstep? That Jesus was created. Mormons are going to say by a, uh, that he's the offspring of Yahweh and a female goddess. And he's their holy offspring. Brother of Lucifer. So he's the first one, and they're going to point to this. So here's what you need to understand, and this is a a premise that's going to underline this this entire 13 weeks, which is the heresies that are around today, cults and the occultic practices, have always been here for 2,000 years. They have not changed. The edifice around them, the facade has changed, the buildings have changed, the names changed. On them have changed. The ideas behind them have been the same from the beginning. Okay? So there's there's an importance for us in the church to then think, well, if these have been the same for the last 2,000 years, then it might be helpful for me to look back in church history and go, what did the early church, how did they deal with these? What did they do about them? What did they say? About them? How how did they counter some of these arguments? So the church became alarmed at Arius' teaching and they convened a meeting to investigate this issue. Not only did the Council of Nicaea affirm the full deity of the Son, it also condemned specific Arian beliefs as heretical. So the church came together and said, no. Now, it was a coin toss. It was up in the air for a while. And there were, there were some people that were on Arius' side. There were a few people that were on Athanasius' side and others. And they debated for a good long while. And it took a long time for persuasion to carry the day. Let's just say it that way. Right? There was a lot that Arius had said that that, they started to, that people started to believe and were persuaded by, which was the reason for the meeting in the first place. An early church father named Athanasius... An early church father named Ath- Athanasius helped clarify that the Son is different in kind and essence from created things. He is instead one in essence with the Father. At the same time, the Son is also distinct from the Father. So they're, they're wanting to preserve two things at the same time. First of all, He is not like created beings. He is one in essence with the Father. Okay? It's very important that you pin that phrase in your mind. Just nail it to the walls of your brain so that you see it every time you close your eyes. Jesus is one in essence with the Father. And at the same time, He is also distinct from the Father. Now, how do we understand essence? Let me... Let me go to the next one and then we're going to talk about this. So the reju- result of the rejection of Arianism was the Nicene Creed of 381. Okay, so technically the Nicene Creed was earlier than that and this is the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, all right? But they just shortened it to the Nicene Creed so that you could actually say it, all right? <laughs> so, so everybody knew what it was. So they initially met... Uh, in 321, and then had to meet again in uh, Constantinople to clarify the definition of what they mean, and what resulted was the Nicene Creed coming out of 381, which helps to define proper understanding of divinity and humanity of Christ. Okay, so I want you to look in your handout. I've got the Nicene Creed somewhere, don't I? Yeah. All right, which gets to Doug's question from the beginning. I told you we'd get there. Here's what I want you to understand. There are some... The way that the early church combated false doctrine is through the early creeds and confessions. That's how they did it. Now, when I say creed to a Baptist church, I recognize that some who have especially been born and raised in the Baptist Church have this sort of natural recoil to uh, creed, the word creed, because there is also a mantra that came up in the early 1900s that was, no creed but Christ, which is a fantastic creed <laughs> <laughs> to, to, say, to say what you believe. Um, but essentially what, what it does, though, is it can often shortcut our understanding of true doctrine. There are creeds that are not good, and there are creeds that are good, just like anything, right? There's good and bad. But some of them help us to clarify sound doctrine in our mind and help to remind us what we actually believe when that Jehovah's Witness or Mormon is on the doorstep. So I want to read this to you. Particularly, I want to read... Some of this you're going to recognize because it sounds a lot like the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I believe in one God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. So he made everything. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. The only, listen, to the, listen to all the false doctrines that he's coming against. Okay, Just listen. N- knowing what you've just heard, listen to all the false doctrines that he's battling against. The only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made. He's from the Father, but He's not made in any way. Okay? Of one essence with the Father. That phrase, one essence with the Father, became a shorthand way of a Christian explaining Trinitarian doctrine to someone. That was it, right there. One essence. So let me just unpack it for just this long, okay? Okay? Bear with me, please. I've used this illustration before, but I want I want you to really think about it. If I brought my twin brother up here, I don't have a twin brother, but let's just say I did. Hell are all like, you have a twin brother. <laughs> let's just say let's say I had one. And let's say my twin looked exactly like me. I mean, so much that our own mother couldn't tell us apart. Same receding hairline and bald patches, same everything. Hair color, eye color, same mannerisms. You're you're sitting there and you would be like, well, that's really spooky. It's like there's two of them. Same likes, same dislikes. Literally everything about us that you could possibly ever identify, we were identical down to our DNA. And so that our mother would not get confused, she named us both Michael. Because she was like, I can't tell them apart, so I'm just going to call them both the same name. All right? Okay. We're sitting up here in front of you. Are we the same? Are we the same? No. Why? Literally everything about us, every discernible factor about us, down to our blood, is the exact same. How are we not the same? So, you're having a hard time going, I don't know why they're not the same, but I know they're not. Right? There is something about a person that makes him or her that person. We're going to call it their essence. Alright? The essence of Millie makes Millie, Millie. That's Millie. And no matter how much somebody might look like her, that's not Millie because that person doesn't have the essence of Millie. Only Millie has the essence of Millie. What the early church is saying about Jesus is though he is different in person from the Father, his essence is the exact same, which is not true of anyone else on this planet. Even if you had somebody next to you that looked identical to you down to their blood, their essence would be different. But Jesus is saying My essence, the essence of me, and the essence of the Father is the exact same, although we are different in person. Does that make sense? So when the early church, Athanasius came in and said, of one essence with the Father, what he meant is, there is no discernible difference in nature to God the Father from Jesus Christ. So he can stand in front of his disciples and he says, hey, you know, you know where I'm going, you know who I'm going to, you know what I, who I am. And he's like, well, show us the Father. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, how can somebody say that? If they share the exact same essence as God the Father, then he can say that. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is what the early church is affirming about Jesus. He's of one essence, though he's different in person. They're not. Right. They're not denying any of those things. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Whereas, whereas twins, even though they, they're, they're different in their same DNA, but they're different in essence. And what we're saying about God is that, about God the Father and God the Son. They're the same in essence, which... Is not true. That's that's why the illustrations of a clover and an ice cube and and all the illustration an egg or all the illustrations for the Trinity that you could possibly ever manufacture will never suffice because no matter what what you have in front of you is different in essence than the thing that you're saying it's related to. So you take a three leaf clover and you say, "Well, this is kind of like the Trinity, right? The three petals, but they're the same. They're the same. They're part of the same clover." No. Because if I pull one of those petals off, I don't have a clover. I have the petal of a clover. Its essence is petal. If an egg, you got the shell, you got the, the white, and you got the yolk, well, that's not an illustration of the Trinity either. Because if you woke up one morning and I said, hey, you want me to make you eggs? And you said, yeah. And I cracked the shell and threw out the insides and I scrambled up the shell and put it on a plate in front of you, you'd go, I don't have eggs. I have eggshell. Right? Because... In the eggshell, you don't have egg, you have eggshell. That's its essence. But that's not true of Jesus. Jesus is saying, in Him, the fullness of deity dwells. So if you have Christ in front of you, you have God. So the early church is affirming that which is rejecting Arianism. It's rejecting Docetism. It's rejecting Ebionism. It's rejecting Adoptionism. It's rejecting all of those ideas that would seek to separate Christ so much from God that it cuts short your ability to be saved by grace through faith in the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's why the phrase, begotten, not made, is important. But second, begotten, just real quick, and we're going to close, okay? So, real quick. Um, I have begotten three children, okay? What did they inherit from me? Well, they're going to die. They inherited my human nature, my humanity they inherited from me. They uh, are finite. They are temporal, meaning there was a time when they were not. What if God, an eternal being, begot something? Would it not also inherit from Him the properties of Him? Meaning, eternality. Immortality. Of course it would. So when the Bible says Jesus is begotten of the Father and not made. It says that because God was not made. So he can't then beget something that shares his essence that is made. Alright, we're getting deep in the weeds. But you get the idea of what where they're going and how they're defining terms. Okay. So, hold on, Doug. Hold on. we got to close this, this down, alright? Uh, so, So essentially what I'm saying is, the creeds are very important, especially the Nicene Creed, is very important for combating these kinds of heresies. But they help you if you'll just remember them, and you'll understand what's being made. Also, there's a note on Catholic down there, so just pay attention to that note, okay, that you're going to see. Pay attention to the footnote there, not meaning Roman Catholic, okay? But if you'll understand what the creeds are actually saying, and you'll, you'll be able to unpack the terms of what it means, the person on the doorstep that's coming to present to you a false gospel will be easily understood and easily, easily distri- d- differentiated between. Because I know what I believe. This is what I'm saying about Jesus. Do you agree with this? Well, no, you... All of a sudden, we're off to the races, right? Okay, let's, let's pray, and then we'll unpack more of this along the way. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for all that uh, your word affirms about Christ and the saving grace that we have in Christ. And we pray for our minds and our hearts to be shaped by true and sound doctrine, that we would be informed by all the things the church has gone through great pains to affirm and to keep and preserve throughout the ages for us. The, The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, handed down to us. From generation to generation. We're grateful for it, and we pray that our minds would be wrapped firmly around sound doctrine, that we might be able to take captive any thoughts that would be alternative to sound doctrine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at ten thirty and Wednesday nights at six fifteen.